J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Sahana vavatu, sahana bhunaktu, sahaviryam karavahavahai, tejasvinavatitamastu, navidvishavahai. Hi, this is Mary from Sydney. My question is, what should we do when a regulation is passed that we don't agree with? For example, in this last year, there's been regulation around the requirement for vaccination. There's also been other emotional issues like the overturn of Roe versus Wade. And I see a lot of people turning to protests in the streets as a mechanism to try to affect change or strongly worded posts on social media. And on the one hand, I can see how this can raise visibility for an issue, which is a positive thing. But on the other hand, I'm wondering if ultimately it's creating division when there isn't a worthy inquiry from the person receiving the message who holds the opposite viewpoint. So I'm wondering when we want to be effective in bringing about progressive change what is the best mechanism to do so? Jaguru Dave, Mary, thanks for your question. Beautifully phrased, by the way. And the styling of your question gave me openings that are very helpful. Thank you. I think we need to do all of it, perhaps with less outrage, because screaming with outrage and maintaining rage has been proven not to be very effective historically. So if we look historically at what really causes stable and progressive social change, it is sufficient numbers of people whose consciousness is raised enough that they can empathize with the needs of the needy, while at the same time themselves not trying to win a neediness contest or a suffering contest. What tends to happen as we continue to practice our meditation is we start to find ways of being the exemplary one whose opinion is sought. You know, being the exemplary one whose opinion is sought sounds like, oh gosh, that's going to take a lot of time and we have to get this thing changed urgently and we have to all get out in the streets or we have to shout in the social media, make a big noise, and then we'll get changed that way. I think change naturally occurs and happens spontaneously anyway. And frequently we give credit about what caused change 
to something that was perhaps a proximate cause, but not an actual ultimate cause. The ultimate cause of change is a raising of the state of consciousness of the society, and this has to happen on a person-by-person basis. And the first person who needs to be the one who has become changed is the one whose personal life reflects all of those values that the majority of people would look to you and say, I want to know that person's opinion and hear all the reasoning. So then the ability to state an argument or a position, let's not call it an argument, even though we're using the word argument here in a proper academic context, but not argumentative, but literally presenting a different position, to be able to present a position in a way that is absolutely persuasive, which is desirably persuasive. I'm always saying to people who have a particular ax to grind, on a subject that it's incumbent upon them to present a style of thinking that is highly attractive. A highly attractive style of thinking to all of those who are complacent or who take an opposite position. Otherwise, we see the history of large political movements. We have a particular snapshot of a 100-year period in Europe from 1900 to 2000, roughly, where groups of people demanded that everyone think in a particular way. There were demands like that being made socially in what became known as the Soviet Union, and demands like that about thinking in particular ways that were made on the opposite end of the political spectrum in Western Europe, all in orbit around the behaviors of the Germans, particularly in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, up to the middle of the 1940s. And the idea that we're going to succeed by being thought police, we're going to succeed by being language police, we're going to succeed by shaming people, or we're going to succeed by shouting and demanding that our particular point of view be responded to, what it does is it does create an immediate social change in the people who are cowed by the shouting or by the demanding or by the assertive and aggressive approach to taking a message. But actually, that's just the superficial behavior on the surface. What tends to really happen is that the negative thinking, the negative behavior, the behavior that's not desirable to the ones who are activists simply goes underground. Underground behavior creates more subversive and destructive change than what people normally measure. When you get underground behavior, then you get large-scale social backlash, and you get entire societies moving in ways that were not predicted by the pollsters. We've seen this in recent times, where a surprising number of people suddenly elected somebody to office 
who all the polls said couldn't possibly ever have been elected. But why did the polls get it wrong? Because when you create a fear-based administration of an idea, when you create a fear-based administration of any kind, even if the fear that you're creating is you think for the good, when you make people afraid to disagree with you, then you're driving their misunderstandings and their lack of consciousness underground. And then that underground has a way of organizing itself into a backlash that ends up being politically very undesirable. This is why what we have to do is be far more intelligent than those who <laughs> oppose us. We have to be far more persuasive, far more charming, far more desirable, far more living a life that is enviable and having a consciousness state that's enviable and then addressing the inquiry on that level as someone who, and this is really properly the term for it, becoming an elder states person of sets of ideas. And this is what historically has been shown to work. But that doesn't mean that when I said all of it, we can certainly express ourselves. You know, it's good to, if you feel rageful, get things out. That may be a tactic, but it's not a strategy. If we want to be strategic, strategy means raise our own consciousness and raise the consciousness of as many people around us as possible. Raising consciousness doesn't mean raising rage or raising anger. It means raising the capacity to be super stable, super adaptive, super intelligent in the way that if you really believe you have a better idea, then that better idea should naturally be more attractive to a larger number of people if only you can express it well. And so a greater ability to be like that. Jay Gruder. Hi, Tom. It's Soski here from Bunjalung Country in Australia. I was hoping that you could talk about Nadi Shodanam, the benefits of it before meditation and either alone, and also how many rounds you would suggest before meditation. Thank you so much for your podcast. I love it. Thank you, Saskia, for your inquiry. What you're referring to as Nadi Shodna and the Vedic worldview jargon, we refer to as Pranayam. Pranayam, which in this particular case is alternate nostril breathing of a specific kind that you learn in a retreat setting when you're under the care of a qualified initiator of Vedic meditation. Prana, the life energy that is in the atmosphere, is turned into prana the moment it meets our nostrils. And our body then converts the atmosphere into a life-giving substance. And we call that prana. Yama means to administer a thing. Pranayama. Pranayam is the proper way of pronouncing it. Pranayam, that final A is dropped. Pranayam, the administration of prana in the body. Pranayam can be done either eyes open or eyes closed for a few minutes prior to meditation. But the pranayam should be properly learned from a Vedic meditation instructor because there are 
hundreds of different types of pranayam, and there's only one that we recommend for people to practice prior to Vedic meditation called Sukha, happiness pranayam. Some of those pranayam techniques can be too stimulating and are designed for immense amounts of excitatory activity after the pranayam. We want to do the type of pranayam that has the de-excitatory effect prior to meditation. Pranayam also can be done in the context of a full round. A round means, for those listeners who don't know, it means doing a specific set of about 10 to 15 minutes of Vedic asanas. An asana, A-S-A-N-A, asana, means a posture or position. These frequently are referred to in the West incorrectly as yoga. Yoga, quotes unquote, has become the name that people use for describing asana. Asana means these physical postures. You bend and stretch your body in particular gentle ways that are beneficial to help release stress in the body in advance of meditation. And it's supposed to be something that you do prior to in the lead up to meditation. Although most people who practice quote unquote yoga in the West don't really have a meditation practice that they do after they've done their yoga. So the specific asanas that are taught by a qualified instructor in Vedic meditation and the pranayam that goes along with it, followed by a meditation session, a Vedic meditation specifically, followed by lying down for 10 minutes. All of that takes the better part of an hour to do. And we recommend that unless you're in a retreat setting, the maximum number of rounds that you should be doing, the optimum number and maximum, is two. That is to say, one full round, asana, pranayam, meditation, 20 minutes, and then lying down for 10 at the commencement of the day before the day's activity. And then again, late afternoon, early evening, one more round, asana, pranayam, meditation, 20 minutes, lying down 10 minutes. This would be the maximum and optimum amount of rounding to do. We have special settings in retreat settings that are run by qualified Vedic meditation initiators where you can do multiples of rounding more than one in the morning, one in the evening. For those who have learned properly how to do rounds and would like to continue doing them at home, if you can't do one in the morning and one in the evening, then you may do either the morning meditation or the evening meditation can be replaced by doing a full round. And the other meditation can just be a regular sit down on the chair and meditate for 20 minutes kind of meditation. So like that, we can use rounds in that way in a home setting, in a domestic setting. But I'd like to emphasize that we do not recommend people do beyond one in the morning and one in the evening rounds in a domestic setting without supervision from a teacher simply because rounding is very, very powerful, particularly at 
digging out our deepest stresses. And digging out deep stress is very valuable, but it's not something we want to do in a domestic setting. We want to do that in a special environment where we can do some industrial strength meditating, but with supervision and the ability to call upon the expertise and wisdom of an experienced teacher of Vedic meditation, who's right there in case we start to experience stress release at a level that makes us uncomfortable. Then there is a way of changing the program to make comfort reappear. It's all very important. Jay Gurudev. Hi, Tom. This is Sophia from Maine. And I would like to ask you if practicing japa meditation with mantra given by guru is considered to be a Vedic meditation. Thanks. Hi, Sophia. Yes, I can say that Vedic meditation as we practice it, as taught to me by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, as taught to him by his guru, the Shankaracharya, Gurudev coming down through a tradition bears some resemblance to what is commonly known as japa. Japa, J-A-P-A, in Sanskrit, it means repetition. But this kind of meditation that we're practicing, Vedic meditation, we do use a mantra, a specific kind of mantra, bija mantra, the Bija Mantra is distinguished by having no intended meaning. In other words, it doesn't work on the level of meaning. It works on the level of sonics or sound. The quality of the sound of the mantra is considered essential for that to resonate with and to match with the thinker of the mantra. And so as a starting point, one of the differences between what commonly is known as japa, where, as you put it, a guru gives a mantra to a student and asks them silently to repeat it, sometimes using a string of beads like a rosary, which in Sanskrit we call a mala, mala, M-A-L-A, to enumerate and count how many times one is repeating the mantra with one bead representing one repetition like that. And there are indications that sometime Gurudev, the master of my master, taught Vedic meditation in this way with the use of beads. But we have a different approach, and an approach that was passed down from Gurudev, Japa Japa. Japa, ajapa. A is the Sanskrit word for negation. So when we want to negate something, supposing knowledge, vidya. Knowledge is vidya. Not knowledge or ignorance is avidya. Vidya, avidya. Knowledge, not knowledge. Gyan, another word for knowledge. And then agyan, another word for ignorance, like that. And so, japa, ajapa, what can it mean? 
for a period of time effortlessly the japa of the bija mantra given by a teacher who has been inducted into our tradition, the Shankaracharya tradition, using a mantra that's been given by a qualified teacher of Vedic meditation. One does use effortless, silent repetition without using beads, without using a rosary or anything like that. And the mantra is repeated effortlessly. And what happens is the quality of the sound of the mantra in the mind begins to become more refined. That means fainter, vaguer, softer, quieter. And that's because the mantra that is given by a teacher of Vedic meditation, someone from my tradition, is a mantra by nature, by its own nature, will spontaneously become more refined, softer and quieter. As it becomes softer and quieter or subtler, the mantra is moving back to the source of thought. See, these bija mantras have a quality that other thoughts don't have. A regular thought is a thought which is about an action. You know, I want water. It's a little hot in here. Some thought to do with some way of mobilizing in order to increase happiness. Thoughts all move in the direction of action to increase happiness through actions, whereas a bija mantra moves from thought in the direction of the source of thought, in the direction of being. And as it does so, instead of becoming clearer, instead of becoming well-defined, a bija mantra, when properly used effortlessly, will spontaneously become less clear, less well-pronounced, more subtle, fainter, vaguer, less distinct boundaries of pronunciation. And as it does so, it increases in its vibratory characteristic, charm. It becomes more charming with each repetition. This is because a mantra that works properly is taking the mind into the subtle, and the subtle is closer to the field of being, which is, in fact, a state of supreme inner contentedness. That supreme inner contentedness, in Sanskrit we call it anand. Anand means bliss, supreme inner contentedness, not ecstasy. It's not an ecstatic state. It's a state of supreme inner contentedness. And as the mantra begins to move in the direction of being, it becomes more and more attractive. And our mind is built in such a way that without any effort, always the mind will move in the direction of greater happiness. So what happens with this mantra? Through japa, through repetition, easy, effortless repetition, comes ajapa. Ajapa means moments where the mantra disappears. When the mantra disappears, the mind is left in a state where there is no mantra, and because of the bliss, no thought replacing it. A state of no mantra, no thought, is the state of being or transcendence. 
In Sanskrit, we say samadhi, S-A-M-A-D-H-I, samadhi. Samadhi means that state of pure, inner, absolute contentedness. It's the contentedness that causes thought to stop. When the mind has reached that state of bliss, the saturation of it is so great that one cannot conceive of anything that would be better than this. And so thinking, which is all about conceptualizing, getting happier, thinking stops. And so this moment of being or samadhi transcendence can only come about when the mantra that we're using has that quality, perfect resonance with the thinker, and the technique of using it is one of effortlessness, not one of concentration and control. So what is very often taught today in the name of Japa, outside of my tradition, is to concentrate, to control, or to try to keep the meaning of a mantra in one's mind or one's awareness. And these are all methods that are quite foreign to the method Vedic meditation. So Vedic meditation, japa japa. That means some repetition followed by mantra stopping, followed by some more repetition, followed by mantra spontaneously stopping as transcendence occurs. Japa ajapa samadhi. Japa ajapa samadhi. Some repetition followed by mantra disappearing, followed by that deep inner silence, pure consciousness. So these are some differences for you to contemplate. Jai Gurudev.